Last week, Bob finished up a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, Um, and it seems to have become somewhat of a tradition here at Grace to spend the late spring and summer months preaching through the history of Israel from the Old Testament. Uh, It started years ago as we looked at Abraham. God called Abraham and said, I will make you the father of many nations, my people, and through your descendants I will bless the entire world. We saw that Abraham had a son Isaac, Isaac had a son Jacob, and last summer we saw the story of Jacob's son Joseph, one of twelve. And because Joseph was the descendant of Abraham to whom God made these promises, of course Joseph's life was amazing, right? It was terrible. Joseph had been kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery and through some other terrible events finds his way to Egypt where God actually uses those terrible events to bring him to a place of prominence and favor, becoming second in command uh, in Egypt. And so since we're jumping back into the story, I felt like it was helpful to begin with a few minutes of historical memory, drawing us back into the story. Uh, If you remember, there was a terrible famine that came across the Middle East, and so Joseph's brothers had to travel to Egypt in search of food. Um, They had to come to their brother, not knowing it was him, and ask for help. Joseph had favor on his brothers. He forgave them, and not only did he provide food for them, he moved his whole family to Egypt. They were given the choicest land in Goshen. And as time went on, the people of God, this family, grew They grew from one family into a nation. And as time passed, Joseph died, and so did the Pharaoh that he knew. And we saw last uh, summer, as we looked at the beginning of the book of Exodus, that the new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph's people, didn't know Joseph, and didn't know the God that they served. And in fact, this new Pharaoh was very concerned about this growing nation within Egypt. And so in order to control their population, he decreed that all the firstborn males of the people of Israel would be killed. Population control through genocide. One baby was set aside by his mother and set aside by God. That was Moses. And through some terrible events in Moses' life, God drew him out of Egypt into the wilderness and into a relationship with God. God met Moses through the burning bush. He told Moses, I have heard the cry of my people in Egypt, and I will save them. And you, Moses, you'll be my mouthpiece to Pharaoh. But Moses was afraid, and Moses was also stubborn. That's what we saw last summer. And he refused to go. But God forgave that sin, and he actually convinced Moses to go speak to Pharaoh on God's behalf. Moses uh, relayed this message. God says, let my people go. And of course, we know the story, Pharaoh refused. And so God began to wage war on Pharaoh's kingship and against the gods that Pharaoh thought gave him authority. God sent nine terrible plagues upon the people of Egypt. And each time, Pharaoh's heart grew more hard against Moses, his people, and against the requests of God. And so ultimately, God said, I'll send one last plague, a death sentence to the firstborn of the land. And in order to protect his people, God told them, here's what you should do. Take a lamb, kill it, paint its blood on the doorframe of your house, and then hold a feast knowing that this death sentence that I have proclaimed will pass over all households that are covered in the blood of the lamb. And at the end of our sermon series last summer, the people of God are holding this feast in the middle of the night, and all they can hear are the cries, the screams, the wailing of the Egyptians as they realize that all of the firstborn of their family, of their household, of their flocks have died. The Bible says that not an Egyptian household was left untouched 
by death. That includes Pharaoh's household. In his grief over the loss of his firstborn, in his sadness and his anger, he calls Moses to him, to his court, and he says, go, get out, take your people, and leave. That's where we ended last summer. Lots of pain and conflict and flexing by God. And this morning, as we start this sermon series in Exodus, restart the sermon series of Exodus, the people of God actually get to exodize. They get to leave. It's time to go. And so as Angela comes and reads our passage this morning, I want you to try and put yourself in the sandals of an Israelite walking out of Egypt that night after all these years and all this pain. What would it be like to finally leave Egypt? Let's give ear to the reading of God's Word. Today's text comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 through 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they had let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Oh God, as we come this morning to a text that uh, we seem uh, so far removed from, we ask that you would send your spirit to us this morning. Help us to see you at work in the lives of your people all these years ago. Help us to see, know, and believe that you, the same God, are at work in our lives, that you are the same God who cares for your people, who looks after them, who saves them. Help us to know the good news of the gospel is true. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. Uh, Last month, we as a family had the opportunity to go to Yosemite National Park. And Nicole found this great cabin. She reserved it months in advance. And when we told our daughters that we were going to go to hike in Yosemite, we showed them pictures of the valley. We showed them a map of where it was and how we were going to get there. We showed them pictures of the cabin. And they were so excited, literally jumping on the couch from couch to couch, excited about this trip. And we asked Margaret, our three-year-old, Margaret, what are you excited about? And she, as she's bouncing, she said, the bathtub. We were like, what? In, in the picture, one of the pictures of the cabin, there was just a, a bathtub, and uh, that was exciting for her. I don't, there's specific history with bathtubs in our family, I guess. We have a bathtub in our house, but apparently this one was super exciting to her. And this excitement lasted for a while. Every morning from the time we told her until the day that we left, she'd wake up and ask, is this the day we go to the cabin? 
Like, no, Margaret, not today. Every night she'd go to bed and she'd be upset that she had missed us going to the cabin or that in the night while she was asleep we'd go without her. So finally we made a a paper chain and told her every night at dinner we'll break one of the links, throw it away, and when there's one left, then you'll know tomorrow's the day we go to the cabin. Well, she was faithful to tear those links off, but every time she did, she'd say, now we're going to the cabin? And so finally the day came. We're driving to Yosemite, and we are, every five minutes, she'd ask the question, where are we going? We're going to the cabin, Margaret. Five minutes later, where are we going? We're going to the cabin, Margaret. We're going on vacation. So finally, after all the hours of driving, we pull in to the driveway of the cabin. She's like, where are we? Margaret, we are at the cabin. Who, whose house is this? Margaret, this is the cabin. We walk in the front door. She's like, who, who lives here? Where, what are... What are we doing here? She knows where we're at. She just is so taken aback. And finally, we walk into the bathroom like, Margaret, look, the bathtub. And she just like walks out of the room like it's no big deal. (laughs) See, she had built this up in her mind so much. She was so excited about it that it was actually hard to believe that she was there, right? There was a sense of disbelief that the day had finally come. And, And I can't help but think that many of the Israelites walking out of Egypt felt the same way. After all of this time longing to be free, watching plague after plague rain down on the people of Egypt and feeling the brunt of Pharaoh's rejections, finally they were free. Finally they were walking out of Egypt. Could this really be true? In the words of the viral video, David at the dentist, is this real life? That's what they were thinking as they walked out. And Moses, the author of this book, writes this history in such a way that it kind of seems odd. He tells us the story, but he interrupts the narrative with all of these strange details that kind of kill the emotion behind it. He tells us what's happening, but then he gives us some logistics. Then he gives us some geographical information, some census data, and some details about food. It's just kind of strange. Why would he do, would write it this way? This is the one major salvific event in the history of Israel. The one thing that they will point back to as the time that God has saved them. And Moses knew that throughout the generations it might become easy to be so focused on the fact that they were saved that they'd forget how. Think about it this way. A child on Christmas morning receives a present, looks at the little flap, and it says, To Johnny from Grandma and Grandpa. And maybe grandma and grandpa are there and he's able to look at them and say, thank you for this. But as soon as he tears open the paper and sees the gift inside, he has forgotten who gave it to him. All he wants to do is play with that gift or the box that it came in, whatever. And throughout the year, as he's playing with this gift, he's so focused on the delight of the gift, he forgets who's given it to him. And as his love for the gift wanes, as his interest in other things take over, not only has he forgotten that gift, but he's also forgotten that grandma and grandpa got him the gift. Moses wants to combat this selective forgetfulness that we all fall into. And so he sticks the details of the story into the narrative so that every year as Israel commemorates this saving event, these same truths are proclaimed. God keeps his promises in surprising and unexpected ways despite dark circumstances. Right? He has those truths embedded in the story so that Israel will always remember what has happened to them in the past. And it will help them understand how to engage with God in their present, which helps us because it helps us know how to engage with God now. 
in our circumstances. God keeps his promises in unexpected ways despite dark circumstances. That's what the passage gives to us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's start by looking at the fact that God keeps his promises. Now, it might be easy to hear this passage and to think to yourself, well, of course, God told Moses that he was going to save his people, and so he saves his people, he keeps his promises, bingo, bango, we're done. Um, But there's more to it than that, right? The depth of the promises are a little bit deeper. The details are a little more important. For example, why does Moses keep talking about this thing with the unleavened bread? What's so important about the unleavened bread? Well, the reality is that God made a promise to Moses that the people would be ushered out of Egypt, not just let go and told, hey, feel free whenever you're ready to get out, but to be sent out urgently. And so the fact that their dough hadn't had time to ferment, to leaven, shows that they had to be sent out quickly. God kept his promise. And the idea of the unleavened bread playing such an important role in this narrative shows us a microcosm of what Moses wanted when he wrote the details. At the beginning of chapter 12, it tells us that God commanded Moses, what I'm about to do, you guys are going to remember forever, generation to generation. You're going to commemorate it in a festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, you're going to eat nothing but unleavened bread. Moses and the Israelites were probably like, why unleavened bread? Can't we feast with leavened bread? It's so much more delicious. But the reason is because God was saying, you're going to remember that you were sent out urgently. You're going to eat unleavened bread for seven days to be reminded of the fact that I delivered you so quickly from the hands of the Egyptians that your bread didn't even have a chance to rise. See, God wants them to commemorate the fact that he has fulfilled the promise, a small promise. But there are bigger, more important promises in this passage. Verse 35 and 36 talk about Israel plundering the Egyptians. It says that they walk out with the gold and the silver of their neighbors. Now, that was promised to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20 to 22. It says this, God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, Pharaoh will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God promised Moses at least several months prior, possibly a year or two prior to them actually leaving, that they would go with all of this stuff, that they would plunder the Egyptians. Now, a skeptic might look at this and say, well, Israel took advantage of Egypt in a a weakened state. They took all their goods and then they left. And Moses said, maybe we shouldn't look like the bad guys. I'll just say that God told me to do this a couple months ago through the burning bush when no one was around to corroborate. But actually, this promise was given long ago. In fact, all of the details that Moses uses in this passage uh, show us that promises given to Abraham generations and generations ago are fulfilled on this night. We talked about this several sermon series ago, but we're going to go back. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. These are the promises made to Abraham 700 years prior to this event. And I want you to hear this. As we read these, I'm going to, you know, make it sound like a checklist of promises that God has completed. Genesis 15, verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain 
that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. Check. And will be servants there. Check. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Check. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Check. And afterward they shall come out. Check. With great possessions. Check. God, in the Exodus event, is fulfilling promises that he made to Abraham, the great, 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 great exponentially grandfather of the people walking out of Egypt centuries before they actually did. Moses interrupts the storyline of the narrative of the people leaving in order for the audience to know God is a God who keeps his promises. This isn't just coincidence. This is God's provision for his people. Have you ever served on a jury? Me neither. I'm a pastor. They don't really like pastors being on juries. They normally excuse us when we're called for jury duty. But I've talked to enough people who have served on juries to know that character witnesses are a big thing in trials, right? Both the prosecution and the defense call witnesses to prove something about the character of someone on the stand. For example, they might call up five or six people to show this person up here, he's always been honest. He's always paid his taxes. He's always been honest with his neighbors. He is trustworthy. So when he says he didn't do it, we can trust him. Or the opposite is true. They'll bring up five or six people to show this person is a liar. He's a cheat. He's never done the right thing. He's always going behind people's backs. We can't trust him just to prove that their character is a specific way. Now, the problem, of course, with humans is that we may be terrible. We may be awful. We may be cheats. We may be duplicitous. But we also might have one moment of honesty and truth. And the opposite, we might be great, gracious, generous, loving, but we have, might have one moment of lying, of dishonesty. But that's not true of God. God is constant. He is consistent. And so as we come to this portion of Scripture, as we see that God is a God who keeps promises to his people centuries ago, you and I can approach the same God in the same way because he is consistent. He is a God who keeps his promises. So what, you might be saying, well, God hasn't made me any promises, right? I'm not enslaved in Egypt and he promised to get me out of there. Well, God actually has made promises to us. What about the promise of salvation? Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise made to you. Okay, great, you might say, that's fine, eternal promises, God, you know, can't, I can't see them until I'm dead, so who knows? That might not be helpful. But what about my life now? What about today? The, God hasn't made any promises about today. Actually, he has. What about the promise of his presence? The author of Hebrews takes a promise from Joshua 1.5 and tells us that it's applied to us. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise of God's presence. He will be with you in the midst of your brokenness of your sorrow, of your celebration, of your joy, God will be with you. What about the promise of his rest? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, 28, says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God makes these promises to us. And as his children, we're supposed to respond as children who have been made promises. Have you ever made a promise to a child? Isn't it amazing how their minds become like steel traps when you make them a promise? Daddy, didn't you say that we were going to go do this? I said that like six months ago. How did you remember that? Of course, that's how we are supposed to approach God. 
the Bible tells us, God invites us to read through the Scriptures, knows the, know the promises He's made to us, know what He means when He's made those promises, and come to Him and say, God, you said this. You've promised this. You said that you would be this for me, that you would be here for me. Fulfill your promise. God invites us to do that, to lay hold of the truth that He is a promise-fulfilling God. And that's really important for us to remember that He is that way because oftentimes we don't see Him working. We don't feel His presence. We don't see that He has given us rest because often God is fulfilling His promise in unexpected ways. Some of the details that Moses chooses to include in this narrative highlight the fact that their departure from Egypt is actually somewhat strange, not the way that we would expect a slave, enslaved nation to leave. For example, the fact that this formerly large enslaved people walk out of Egypt on their own, they begin at a city named for the Pharaoh, and they go in whichever direction they choose. No one's telling them which way to go. They get to choose on their own. The fact, of course, that they walk out with the gold and silver, but not only that, verse 36 says that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. They walk out favored. On top of that, Moses says that this was, there was a mixed multitude that went with them. A mixed multitude suggests to us that there were multiple nationalities following them. It wasn't just Israelites. In fact, many people believe that there were Egyptians who went with them. Egyptians who had seen that Pharaoh was, was not actually God. That Yahweh, the God of Israel, was God and deserved to be followed. What, this is not what we expect. Last year, I had the chance to visit the Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was a powerful, powerful day that I spent there, and it was an amazing place. A good portion of the facility is spent on people who had been freed from slavery through the Underground Railroad, people who had worked to help free others from slavery. Um, And you get to see some of the methods that were used to help usher slaves up to the north so that they could travel up to Canada, most of them, to freedom. And they were very odd. People hiding in animal transports, literally laying in the slop and the dirt and the filth of animal transport carts. Uh, The same is true with vegetable carts and the bugs and the pests and all this kind of nonsense. They had false bottoms built into boats so that people could stow away where the the waste was kept because no one was going to go down and search in the waste. It had had biographies of people who defied their families, defied their cities, the government, in order to help free people from slavery. But the most powerful part of the whole center is in the very middle, uh, and it's in an open-air, probably three-story section uh, it's the slave, a reconstructive slave pen. And this slave pen is just uh, overwhelming as you walk up towards it. It's a giant, two-and-a-half-story-tall wooden uh, shack. Um, and the outside is completely covered in wood. There are no windows. And you can smell the wood as you walk into the room. And as you go up this ramp to the back where there's at the doorway, and you walk in, and what you realize is that most of the wood of the slave pen is recovered from a field in Kentucky. It's actually the wood used in a slave pen. On the inside, there are these iron eyelets where humans were chained to them. And as you walk through and you smell the wood and you feel the cold iron, you also get to read accounts 
from freed slaves of what their life was like having been put in a slave pen. This is where they were held after they were bought down at the docks before they were sold off to other landowners. There's also records of slaves that were entered into slave pens. There were pictures of freed slaves and slaves who had died. And what that portion of the Freedom Center does is it helps you realize why. Why would people go to such lengths to escape, to be so subversive to their families and their towns in order to help people escape? It helps you realize that when you're escaping from slavery, you're going to do whatever it takes. And that's exactly what we'd expect from Israel, that they would escape slavery alone, quietly, hidden, probably out the back gate, with nothing but clothes on their back. But no, here Israel is waltzing out the front door of Egypt with all of the gold and silver like they own the place, being saved in such a way as to garner favor from the Egyptians to bring some of them with him. God shows up and rescues his people in a surprising way. But he doesn't always do it in a way that is bigger and grander than you might expect. Often, God shows up in subtle ways. We saw this as we looked through the books of Hosea and the books of Esther this past year. God shows up often subtly, quietly, silently. I'm reminded of the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, where God promises Elijah he's going to meet him on the mountain. So Elijah goes up on the mountain, and a great wind came by and tore up all of the rocks, but God was not in the wind. Then an earthquake, God was not in the earthquake. And then a great raging fire, but God was not in the fire. Then, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12, there came a low whisper. Elijah heard it, covered his face, and he goes out and meets with God. See, God works in unexpected ways. Sometimes they're grander than we expect. Sometimes they're more subtle than we expect. And the question is, what are you tempted to believe that God isn't doing in your life? Or maybe you're tempted to believe God can't do something in your life. And are you willing to take a step back and say to yourself, maybe I'm expecting the wrong things. Maybe God is working in a subtle, silent, quiet way. In in an encouraging word, from a friend, in an accidental nap in the afternoon, in a one hour of quiet time as you sit in traffic with a broken radio. Maybe God is working in such grand ways that you wouldn't even be willing to ascribe them to Him, but instead you find some plausible reason something's happening. Success at work. God is giving you favor in the eyes of your boss or your coworkers, but it has to be because of the job you're doing. Maybe a amended relationship God has brought you back together with someone that you've had conflict with, but it's probably because they were willing to forgive you or you were willing to forgive them, not God. See, God works in unexpected ways. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in our own lives. And it's important for us to be reminded of this time and time again, that God keeps His promises in unexpected ways because so often God fulfills His promises in the midst of dark circumstances, despite the dark circumstances. I asked you at the beginning to imagine yourself being in this procession of Israel as they are walking out of Egypt. And we don't really know what they were thinking or feeling. We imagine that they were extremely exuberant. But can you imagine what it was like just a few hours before? 
Having spent your entire life enslaved, you're now sitting here in the darkness of a house, ready to leave, smelling the blood of animals all the time, hearing the screams of the Egyptians around you as they realize that their firstborn are dead, not knowing anything, not being able to go out of your house. All of this seems like there is no way to be rescued. All of this would point to the reality that Egypt would be so angry that they will burst through that door and it will be your blood on the wall. That night was so dark, they could not imagine that rescue was on the way. They felt the opposite was true. History, the history of God's people, uh, their extended history, 430 years of being enslaved, as well as the events of the last couple of months for them, would lead to them believing that rescue isn't coming. The night was too dark. What about your extended history, your family history, your childhood, your last couple of months, your last week? I know that for many of us, as I've talked to you, the truth of what you've been through is too heavy for you to have hope for change. That the weight of your past darkens any hope you might have that God might shine, might come in and change your life. Maybe for you, the night of today is too dark. That's why we need to be reminded that God shows up when it is darkest. Have you ever heard this saying, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these courageous couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds? Maybe you haven't. That, I grew up thinking that that was the U.S. Postal Service theme song. It's not, actually. And I always thought it was funny growing up in Florida. Why does it start with snow? Like, snow never affects any postal workers. That was strange to me. It's actually a phrase used by the Greek historian Herodotus about the um, army couriers going back and forth from the Peloponnesian War. He knew that they were consistent, and so they could trust that any report that they were going to receive from the battle, they would receive it. And the Postal Service in the 1800s, when they built the first post office, the headquarters in D.C., decided to put the Herodotus saying around the front. But we all just assume that it's about our postal workers, that it tells us that we can trust we're going to get the mail. It comes in handy sometimes. For example, as I was looking at this, uh, apparently the Hope Diamond, when it was sent to the Smithsonian, when it was donated, was mailed in a brown paper bag. I bet the Smithsonian looked at this phrase and said, all right, we can trust that it's going to get here, right? That's what this passage in Exodus is telling us. We can trust that at its darkest, God has not abandoned us. When life is at its darkest, when all other lights seem to have gone out, when the deck feels like it's stacked entirely against us, in fact, God shows up. He did so here in the Exodus when he saved his people, Israel, from their slavery to Egypt. And he also did when he showed up on the cross and he saved his people from their slavery to sin. Think about this. As Jesus is crucified on the cross, the accounts of the Bible tell us from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. That's noon to three. The land was dark, physically dark. But more than that, all the people surrounding Jesus saw their friend, their brother, their son executed, emotional 
darkness. And on top of that, these were people who thought that Jesus would save them from their enslavement to Rome, that this was God's appointed person, their Savior, to free them from their enslavement. Now he's being executed. This is spiritual, emotional, and physical darkness. And they thought that all lights, all hope had gone out. But in fact, at that very moment, that was the greatest rescue in the history of the world. Jesus, who is God, became man, and he died the death that you and I and all of Israel and every human that has ever lived deserves to die because of our sin. Why did he do it? To set you and I, anyone who believes in him, free from our slavery to sin and brokenness. That's what this passage is calling out to us with. In our Grace Kids classes for the month of April, uh, the biblical character trait that kind of defined the month was hope. And our kids were taught this simple definition of hope, and I think it's really helpful for us. Believing that God can bring something good out of something bad. That's what Exodus is teaching us, that no night is too dark for God. This whole section, all of this that that Moses is teaching the Israelites, that Moses is teaching future generations of Israelites, that the Bible communicates to us is summarized in verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord. No matter how dark your life seems, no matter what storyline you are in the middle of, no matter what extended history and family baggage you have, God is keeping watch over you. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your sufferings. He has not fallen asleep. He has not abandoned you. He is on guard. God keeps watch over his people. The two most powerful events of salvation that we have recorded for us, the cross and this event in Exodus, show us that no matter how dark our circumstances might seem, God is a God who keeps his promises, and they often are fulfilled in unexpected ways. We have the ability to trust that God is at work, that God is watching, that he is bringing his promises to fulfillment. That's good news. Let's pray. God, we hear you in your word communicate to us, but we confess that it's so hard for us to believe. I ask that you would help these words from your scriptures. Help us believe. Give us strength to believe. Help us know that you are a God who fulfills your promises, who is at work watching over us. I ask that that would give us encouragement, that that would bolster our faith, that uh, for those of us who don't know that you are a God who fulfills promises, that we would see for the first time that you you are a God who promised to forgive sin and you accomplished that on the cross. I pray that each one of us would feel your faithfulness to us and be changed by it. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.